The Lord God, we come this morning with many distractions, many of us do. We come here really thinking about Christmas, but sometimes also thinking about the gifts of Christmas or of uh, logistics for plans after worship here on things that need to get done. Uh, so we come here with, uh, with clouded hearts even, or, or uh, not even sure of what all of this is and not even sure if we believe it. Wherever we are though, Lord, we pray that your spirit would take this word. We need your spirit to take this word and plant it in our hearts so that it might be watered and grow up into seeds of faith, or to the plants and fruit of faith, that it might blossom, that we might just not know more about Jesus, but that we might love him more. Uh, we pray in this time that Jesus would become more believable to us and more beautiful to us than he was before. We pray this in his name. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can, you can turn there. If not, you can just listen and hear uh, the, the words that are spoken here. But pay careful attention. This is the word of God. And just for a little context, this is at, just after the birth of Jesus, um, the, the week after, uh, and Jesus is being, being presented in the, the temple here in Jerusalem. And they go in, Mary and Joseph and Jesus go in, and this is what they see. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Amen. Well, during the Advent season, the season where we focus on the waiting and the longing of God's people, as they and as we await uh, the person, or await his salvation, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That time's now over. And with that, so our series that we've been going through in Advent, where we looked at the Psalms, which cry out, How long, O Lord? That's also over. Because now the season of waiting is done, and the dawn has broken forth into the darkness. Joy has arrived. The advent of our Lord has come. Christ Jesus, the Lord's salvation, to a people who are lost and in darkness has arrived to walk the earth for us 2,000 years ago. And though we still look to his return, our hearts can be full of joy and of gladness because Jesus and his light has changed the status quo of the world and its gloom. Joy is here. This is a time for celebration. And we can all think of times when we've waited for something specific and we've had to wait a very long time. 
And then that day and the moment finally arrives and we are elated. I mean, kids, I'm sure that was the way some of you felt this morning, right? You woke up at 5 a.m. because Christmas Day had come, right? And there's all the gifts under the tree. It's one of the greatest days in the world, isn't it? And although maybe there's a few of you kids who might still be waiting until the afternoon to open gifts, you're still waiting right now. You're still longing. And you have my condolences because I still have plenty of time to preach here. (laughs) I consider, though, June 7th, 2014, though, with this sort of waiting and longing anticipation and joy. And that was the day that I married my wife, Alyssa. And all that time leading up to our wedding, there was this anticipation of actually getting to marry her. And I kept thinking, don't mess this up. All right? And then the morning finally arrived, and I saw her when it was time for our photos beforehand, and it was surreal. It was like, is this really happening? I'm so happy. Is this for real? Am I about to do this? More importantly, is she about to do this? And I don't mean this in a way that sounds like cheap poetry, but it really did feel like a dream in that moment. And this is something that Simeon must have experienced, because he too had been waiting for a very long time. Longer than the 364 days until the next Christmas. Longer than the 28 years before I got married. It was his entire lifetime. And it wasn't for gifts that are wrapped in paper or even as something as monumental as matrimony. It was for the salvation of the Lord. But his waiting had reached a peak by this time in his life. Not only because he had been diligently anticipating God's promise, what we read as the consolation of Israel, but because the Spirit of God had revealed to him that he would see it before he died. And we don't know at what point in his life that was. We don't even know how old he was at this point in here in the story. It's suggested that he was probably advanced in age. But think about this, though. How that waiting had reached a peak in him. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be ten years from now. Maybe he didn't know how long he was going to live. But he was going to see it someday, with his very eyes in his own lifetime, however long that was to be. And then, one morning, he felt led by the Holy Spirit in some way, and the Spirit took him to the temple, and he walks into the temple courts, and there it was. The Spirit was pointing him to the promised Savior, the long-awaited consolation of Israel. And he walks over to this person, and who was it? Not anyone who seemed important, not a conqueror, not someone who looked like they might be a savior, but it was a freshly born baby being dedicated in the temple. You know how small newly born babies are? I forget sometimes. And then to parents who are very, pretty insignificant also, and perhaps they were even making one of the smallest offerings that was required by the law. But Simeon scoops up this little child Jesus into his arms and with tears in his eyes and awe in his voice, he blesses the Lord. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It's hard to pick up in our English translations, but the emphatic word in the original Greek language in which this was written is now. Now is the time. It signified fulfillment. The time's come. 
The waiting is over. It's a breath of relief. Right? How often have you spoken now like that? Where it's like, ah, oh, now, finally. And Simeon delights here in that, that now is a time. Now there's consolation. Now there's peace. Now there's salvation. All of these things that he had been waiting for. And his eyes beheld it all as they focused on this little baby in his arms. And our eyes haven't seen this as he did. But that doesn't mean that this isn't for us. Not that we won't ever see it. Because these are all realities that are just as true and for us as they were for Simeon. And we will see them with our eyes someday. Not with Jesus as a baby, but Jesus fully grown and developed as he is. Jesus in glory and majesty and Jesus having brought everything to pass. So we're going to look at those nows. Now there's consolation. Now there's peace. Now there is salvation. And so the first now, there's consolation. And there's consolation because the Father's promises are fulfilled. Now what Simeon had been waiting for was consolation. Verse 25, he was waiting for, it says, the consolation of Israel. And those words evoke that notable passage in Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people. If you know Handel's Messiah, that's one of the famous parts of it there. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. These are the comforting words of the Lord to his people. This is the tender words of mercy and hope to a people who were wounded, who had been dragged through the mud, and who had been left in ruins. Comfort! Your sins are forgiven. All your warfare is finished. The time of destruction is over, and now the rebuilding begins. The Lord your God is with you. And isn't that itself there a comfort? Simeon knew the misery and the ruin of life. I mean, we all do. Why would he be any different? Of course he sought comfort and was waiting for consolation. That's something that we all need in troubling times. We experience the passing of our loved ones. We know what it's like to be deeply wounded emotionally or spiritually or to be betrayed by our friends so that we have a difficult time trusting others. We live out of fear. We have depression hanging over us and in our minds and it just doesn't leave. What do we need in those times? We need consolation. We need comforting. And comfort often comes in its first stages merely by the presence of another who's sitting with us, who's grieving, crying tears with us, or the tears that we are too numb to cry ourselves. But that's not all. Comfort eventually has to be given through words. Words of hope, that this may be your experience right now, but that's not everything, and it's not forever. And Simeon praises God, and he breaks into blessing him because the promise of this comfort lies in his very arms. The promise from God, from God the Father, came through this child, Mary's son, also God's son. Now, during the Christmas season, we rightly focus a lot on the, on the birth of Jesus. We reflect upon the wonder and the mystery of the incarnation that God took on our humanity. 
that he became so human that he even gestated inside of Mary's uterus and passed through her birth canal and emerged into the world wet, naked, and bloody, just like all of us do. And his arrival into the world heralded something new and beautiful. But our Christmas celebrations can sometimes forget that God is triune. That he's not just the Son, but he's also the Father and the Spirit as well. And perhaps we think of the Spirit at this time, the Spirit filling Mary's womb, hovering over its dark emptiness just as he did in creation, and bringing forth new life with the human nature of Jesus. But what about the Father? We remember the Son, but the Father? It can almost be as if he's forgotten when it was his only begotten Son that he sent. See, without God the Father, there would be no Christmas story. We often think about Christmas being just about Jesus, but at its heart is a story of promises made and promises kept. He made his promise, and he gave his Son. All the Father's promises that he made find their perfect fulfillment in Jesus, in who he is, and in what he came to do, which is also what he's done. And that, includes waiting for the com- and that includes the comfort and the consolation of God's people that Simeon was waiting for. But it was the Father who made those promises. And he held firmly to maintaining those promises in his steadfast covenant faithfulness. So the Father gave his promise and that led him to give his son. Not because he had no other choice or he realized along the way that this was the best way to do things, he gave his promise with the intent all along of giving his son. Why did the son come? Yes, he loved the world, but he was sent by the father to do what what the father willed, which was to save helpless and desperate sinners, because the father also loved the world. Why did Simeon wait? What sustained him through his years of waiting? It was his knowing the father's character of his steadfast commitment to do what he said that he would do. And why was Simeon so relieved? Because now he held the fulfillment of the Father's promises to him and his people right there in his arms. We all need comfort at different times in life. Even the strongest and the most hardened of us do. And real comfort can be had because the Father has kept all his promises and he will continue to keep them all the way until the end. It came in the form of Jesus Christ sent by the Father. And if he sent his son to be humbled as we are in this, and he sent his son to be humbled as we are in this world, and because of that, will he stop there? We all turn to comforts. Everyone does. Netflix, food, exercise, hours of social media. The only question is, does this provide any real comfort, or is it just some escape in the moment? If you're here this morning, if you're serious about finding comfort, instead of escape, have you looked at Jesus, who was given on Christmas morning? Have you also, though, considered the Father who gave him? Because there's nothing more there that can be worthy of your trust. So we have now there's comfort, but second, now there is peace. Now there is peace because glory is restored. And Simeon blesses God, and he confesses that now he's able to depart in peace. You can imagine the relief that he had, knowing that not only could he die, but he could die having seen his Savior. And there's comfort in death, knowing the face of Jesus. There was for Simeon in the face of the baby Jesus. 
And how much more so knowing the face of the risen Jesus Christ looking upon you with love. But this wasn't just a sense of individual peace. He was also able to die in peace knowing that the dawn of a new age was on the cusp of breaking forth. It was peace that went beyond his own satisfaction. He knew that with this Savior there was peace for the world. And the child that he, that he beheld was ushering a radical change to take place. A Savior who would quite literally turn the world upside down. Reversing the course of human history from death and darkness into light and life. I imagine if Simeon were here today, walking through the neighborhoods of Newburgh, that he would be surprised by seeing the figures in all of the nativity scenes. I imagine he'd be thinking, that moment that I held Jesus in my arms was the most exhilarating moment in my life. And one of the most profound events in human history. There I held the Son of God wrapped in humanity. A new beginning to overturn everything awful that you and I know. And this is supposed to be him. A plastic baby, clean and smiling, glowing from a 12 watt bulb and bought for $19.99 from Home Depot. Right? But in seriousness, so there is no way to capture what was happening in that moment? Simeon held the child, a promise from millennia back, who was the beginning of a new era in history. The Savior God sent from God to crush the darkness and to give us peace. Peace with God. And a peace that's as real as the very flesh and blood that rested in Simeon's arms on that day. See, he could commit himself to death because now it was time for life, not for mourning. It was for light, not for darkness. For joy, not for fear. Because of the peace that the Savior Jesus was to bring. Was Simeon going to live to see the baby Jesus grow up into a man? And to see him minister among the sinners and outcasts? And to heal the sick and to cast out the demons? To see him die and then rise again and to ascend? Probably not. But he was satisfied. He was at peace because the present age was now coming to an end. And no one else that he knew had to experience it, at least not as the way that it defined their lives, not his brothers, not his sisters, not the generations afterwards. The peace of God wasn't just for him, and it isn't just for us. It's for humanity, lost and sinful humanity in darkness, in need of rescue. And part of the peace which Simeon beheld was glory. A glory restored back to humanity and to the world. He says, My eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Jesus the Savior was to restore glory for those who were in Israel, which was profound considering that they all knew that their prior glory, which was the glory of the Lord, it had been left a hundred years ago. And they were still in ruin. But he was also to be a light for the Gentiles. To show them the way through the darkness to where glory could be found. Among Israel. And to bring them in so that, uh, so that all could enjoy it. It was a glory for all people being brought in there. But what does that mean? What does that mean glory? Maybe we think of our glory years in our youth. Or when we were in our prime and when life was good. Or some golden age that was that we're trying to rec reclaim or to get back to. 
But that's not what these Jewish people considered when they heard glory. When they heard the phrase, their mind went to the glory of the Lord, the only true and worthwhile glory. And namely the glory of God as he dwelt with them and as he manifested himself among them. And they reflected his glory brilliantly to the world. And that glory only comes through him dwelling with his people. And that relies on a restored relationship with him. So that they might be with him and not be obliterated, not be consumed by the intensity of his glory. I mean, that's the sort of glory that we're talking about here when we talk about the glory of God. And it's a glory that can only be had by being at peace with God. So that you can be close to him. And a glory that shone outwards from them. A glory that was reflected by them as they were in close fellowship with him. The brightness and glory of the moon doesn't come from itself, right? It comes from the sun. The moon's radiance depends upon the face of the sun shining on it. If not, you have a darkened moon. The glory of God's people comes not from themselves, but from God as the glory of his face is reflected from them to be enjoyed and is radiated outwards for the nations to behold. This was the glory that was lost. The glory that was lost by Israel, but ultimately the glory lost by humanity after the fall. And everything that makes life merely tolerable at best is because the world has lost its glory. We've lost our glory. Right? What's the opposite of glory? It's ruin, degradation. It's the loss that we know too well. Right? We all know that Christmas classic, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Is that so? There are so many who experience deep dissatisfaction during the Christmas season because of the results of lost glory. People who have had to navigate the death of loved ones during the holidays, and it brings up so much pain. For as many as who are gathered together to enjoy the festivities, there's an equal amount who sit alone and struggle amid their isolation, even their alienation. People deal with bitterness in the holidays, anger, sadness, all because of the glory that's lost in the world. Yet this child came through the world as God's salvation, bringing a restoration of glory. Glory in knowing God intimately and in communion with him once, once more. Having been forgiven and having been reconciled with God by the death of Christ. It's glory upon the earth and glory from the decay as we endure in, that we endure in both body and soul. Glory in our relationships as restored people. Glory at, with hearts that desire God's glory rather than selfishly going after our own. Have we been waiting for something far less than this glory? Are we satisfied with anything less than the glory that Jesus gives? That's where peace is found. And as we see his work of peace as relationships are mended as reconciliation is wrought, as people are made whole, and we confess the hope of resurrection for the life to come. Now we have con there's consolation. Now there's peace. But finally, now there is salvation because Christ has appeared. There, is, there in Simeon's arms was salvation itself. It's salvation not as many would have expected because it would come through Jesus' rejection. Simeon, still in the spirit, he reveals to Mary more of the nature of how her child 
also being God's son, would save his people. Verses 34 and 35. It would come through great cost, through his suffering and his rejection. He would be rejected by his people. Not that they didn't want glory. Of course they did. But they were anticipating something entirely different altogether. And they were reaching for a glory unattainable on their own. But on the other hand here, those who were poor and lowly and humble before God, knowing full well their need, would be lifted into his arms and receive this, this, this salvation as they welcomed him with gladness and with faith. Jesus isn't a savior if you don't want him. Or even if you don't want saving. And that's not because he's uncompassionate or unwilling. If that's the way that we feel, it's because of our own stubbornness. It's being given the best Christmas gift, but then rejecting it because you're more enamored with the wrapping paper isn't the fault of the giver. It's the fault of the receiver. And I hope we're not too proud to receive this Jesus or that we consider ourselves too smart or too clever or too enlightened for him. But it's also, though, because being on the outside, when looking at him, Jesus didn't look like a great savior. We're accustomed to feats of strength, shows of force. That's what we think what we need if we actually need saving anyways. But Jesus' salvation would come through his rejection and his loss. And Simeon alludes to this as he speaks to Mary. Jesus would experience the deepest loss and she would be absolutely gutted to see him go through it. Those of you with children, it's gut-wrenching when you see your kids suffer traumatically. And although I don't know what this feels like, I can't imagine even the gut-wrenching pain of losing a child. And Mary would see all this. His unspeakable suffering as he was whipped and beaten, his rejection as he was mocked and spit upon, and then left to brutally die hanging naked on a cross before the masses. But that was only the visible suffering that he went through. Because unseen to her was the agony of, of God the Father's wrath being poured out upon him as he bore the sins of his people. But this is where salvation would take place. This is what Jesus the Christ came to do. To reconcile us to God in this way by removing all that separated us from his holiness. And to destroy darkness and curse by being cursed for us as he hung upon a tree. God's salvation has appeared because Jesus Christ has appeared. And Simeon beheld God's salvation with his own eyes. In 1 John 1, the beginning there, the Apostle John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, here this is so that we might have fellowship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Simeon didn't see everything. He didn't see the cross. He didn't see the resurrection. He didn't see the ascension as we have witnessed to. But he saw enough. He saw the promise of God fulfilled in flesh and blood. And he saw it with his eyes. He touched it with his hands. And he heard it with his ears. And none of us have seen him with our eyes. Not like Simeon did. And there will be a day when we do. When, when he comes back. And we have his promise given to us with the same certainty as all of God's other promises. But let me ask you this. Have you beheld Jesus like Simeon, but in a different way? Have you beheld him in faith, 
with this longing, with this eagerness, with a trust? Have you considered who he is and reckoned with the historical truth of his coming? Or we have the witness of his coming here from his word. A word that has stood the scrutiny over time and a word that's from the spirit of God himself. And although we haven't beheld him in the flesh with our eyes yet, we do behold him in a way that Simeon hadn't yet. By, by his word there, which the apostle Peter says... That the word of God is actually more trustworthy than his own eyes from which he saw Jesus. But we also see him, though, by his ongoing work in the world through his spirit. By the tangible effects of his reconciliation and the change that he brings. Even the fact that his light has gone forth global in a relatively short uh, period of time amid persecution. And I realize the whole Christmas story is bizarre. A child born of a virgin. That's strange, right? And if you think that's hard to believe, I'd say just keep reading through the rest of the Gospels. You'll find a lot of stuff that's just as hard, if not harder, to believe. But it's not like these people weren't any less skeptical or analytical than us. Because plenty of those people whom Jesus grew up with had suspicions about his mother and where he came from. But if you want to remain that way and you want to keep that skeptical posture, then you must come up with a more satisfactory story to explain his work throughout human history. That an offensive religious leader whose followers after his death and resurrection were reduced to only a few people, then would suddenly hear this, it would turn into a movement that would explode and create this movement that would, that would um, in, in, a, in a religious environment, Amid, uh, that was hostile to it, amid hostility, amid persecution, involving something as wild as resurrection, and then within a generation had continued to explode across the known world despite the culture of skepticism and, the gov and governmental persecution. Right, you've got to do something with that. That in a matter of a hundred years, or sorry, uh, several hundred years, it had turned the world upside down. And people's lives are still being changed by this Jesus in every nation and culture across the world. You need to come up with an alternative story that's more satisfying historically and the story that we've been given. Right? And again, these were skeptical people in this age. We think that we're so much smarter. Really? Have you seen all the proliferation of cat videos on the internet? Like, are we really that smart? Who are we to say that we're so much more enlightened than those people were. They lived in a society just as skeptical as ours. No matter what, though, you need to reckon with Jesus. That either all of this is true, that Simeon beheld the Savior Jesus and we celebrate along with him, or it's not. And we really don't have a good reason to celebrate other than to have fun or feel better about the world because there's really no hope. What are we going to do with that? What are you going to do with him? Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Christ Jesus, we do adore you this morning. And we even can address you in this way this personal direct way because you are the living one you are the one who came for us who lived for us and who didn't just die but is resurrected and ascended 
We are a people, Father, who are in desperate need of hope. And we ask that you would comfort us with the same consolation that you have comforted your people with through the ages, that you always keep your promises, that there is peace, and that there is consolation and salvation. Spirit, we pray that you would take these things and break through our own defenses, that you would cut through our clouds and the fogs in our mind, and that you would warm our hearts with it, that they would not be just words that we have heard, but words that are truth for us to live by and to wrap our lives around and sometimes even just simply cling to with our fingernails because we don't have anything left. Lord, we pray that you would prepare us now as we shortly come to the table that Jesus Christ sets for us every week. We pray this in his name. Amen.